I gotta tell you, that theme is really growing on me. Really? Yeah. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be big. Well, I'll have to make it longer. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, I think it's uh, gonna. It's, it's unique. People are gonna be listening to us, and it, it's it's very good. Anyway. Thank you. I'm dreaming about it now. I yeah. I think the Austin Powers theme has some competition now. Yeah, I think so. Mm. <laughs> I think there's no way. No It'll way draw them in. Well, hello and welcome to episode five of Adult Music, your podcast for music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ, along with Mike here. Here and I am. the Grammy Awards have been announced. Yes, we're sorry to be a day late with this um, podcast, but we wanted to get all the Grammy results. And we got them and we were going to record the podcast right after the Grammys. But we were so annoyed and frustrated that we we, we, we that we had to take a rest and collect our senses before we came back. That's not true. I'm just kidding. You're just kidding. Okay. Yeah, it was um, it was okay. It was a uh, there there were it was predictable really what what happened in the uh, winners of the Grammys. But there were a few uh, nice surprises in it. Anyway, let's take a look at who won. Yeah, let's go uh, through and review these results. Yeah. Okay. So it's starting with the Jazz Grammy since we did that episode first about two weeks ago. Best improvised jazz solo. Chick Corea, all blues. Thumbs up from me. Yeah. As yeah. we said a couple of weeks ago, uh, okay. this album is just full of good solos. You could pick anyone, really. And this is an excellent work of uh, this tune. Great solo. Yeah, we, here, picked, we so. actually picked this one because we thought Chick would. Uh, would get it. Okay, onwards to just best jazz vocal album. We kind of wanted Kenny Washington here, but the winner was Kurt Elling. Now, the thing is, Kurt Elling, he, he's another guy who always wins. You know, he's he's sort of a an, uh, you know a Grammy committee favorite. His last album won too, and this one we weren't too happy about. This is pretty lame, if you ask me. I'd only put <laughs> this on if I wanted to make myself in a worse mood on a bad day. Yeah. I do like him though. I like his voice. But yeah, I don't know. This this didn't really do it for me either. I was kinda Yeah, as I said, kinda, I, I've been kind of pleased with some of his earlier recordings when he was doing an, a unique interpretation of a a standard or a good arrangement that was I made like him for in him. Standards. But or here, even songs that yeah, even songs that aren't standard. Like in the last album he did um uh Bob Dylan song, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. I thought that was really intriguing. Yeah, if he in has the right arrangement, arrangement there's not. I mean, his voice yeah. is uh, is excellent in the right context, but uh, the material here is just uh, dreary. So, well, let's yeah, hope we well, see uh, Kenny come back and uh, get some more recognition. All right. I recommend if you listen to "Secrets Are the Best Stories." After that, just get a little bit of a uh, ear cleanse with uh, "What's the Hurry" by Kenny Washington. Then you'll be in a yeah. good mood again. Okay, best jazz instrumental album went to Trilogy 2, Chick Corea, Christian McBride, and Brian Blade. That was our pick to win this group, and it did, and we're very happy. Yeah, great. I am. Yeah, one okay. and two are both good. The interplay here and the solos are good. Uh, and Yeah, uh, this is a good no album surprise. to listen to if you're actually a jazz musician you want to hear good interplay between musicians. It's really incredible. Um, the three of them communicate exceptionally well. Yeah, very clear recording too. Uh, you feel like you're right 
next to the oh. stage on this one. Okay, best large jazz ensemble album went to Data Lords by Maria Schneider Orchestra. Now, okay, she's another Academy favorite. Her last album also won in this category about five years ago. And I really loved this record, so I was very happy about it. I I like this recording because I think it's interesting. Uh, however, this is not a big band in a real traditional sense. It's a large modern ensemble. So the only mm. reservations I have about this one is that, uh, well, I really enjoy the Monkestra recording so far, although I didn't feel that this recording was any better or more interesting than the previous right. ones. But I would have liked to have seen uh, one of the traditional kind of big band uh, albums. This one are the Orrin Evans and the Captain Black big band get some recognition too. I liked all these recordings, so... Yeah. Yeah. I, wanna, I, I don't feel too either way about this one. Yeah. I want to say about the John Beasley, he had done two previous Monkestra records, and they were I thought they were both better than this one, although this one was really good too. But I thought one the, the first two where he does all Monk tunes were fantastic, so I would uh, dig those up if I were the listeners. Also, if you want to hear Data Lords, you have to buy it from Maria Schneider's website, um, it's just not available anywhere. Yeah, and it was pretty expensive. So there you go. Yeah, thanks for letting me listen to your copy. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Anybody else who's my friend and wants to listen to my copy of Maria Schneider, just uh, give me a ring, okay? All right, next, um, best Latin jazz album. Oh, boy, this was really disappointing, I this thought. This is like the worst one of the, of the list, of the five, I thought. Yeah, of the five. This was this one would have finished fifth in my if I had to rank them. Uh, four questions. Uh, Arturo Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. Yeah, I thought all the other four were just really, you I know. Have more than four questions about why this one won. <laughs> I do have an answer, though, that I'm not going to listen to any more albums with recitations after doing this Grammy list. I'm just that, that, tired of it. You know, the, the Beats used to do that in the 50s. They would recite their poetry over jazz. And eh, I guess it's got a flavor of the period to it. It's kind of cool to listen to. But it's it just it's just not that interesting. I, I kind of prefer... Uh, you know, I, I prefer just to hear instrumental music or singing, you know, so exactly. I, don't, I really like recitation over jazz, really. Yeah, okay. and this last, was a letdown. Yeah, letdown. This, and Latin jazz is usually my favorite uh, group, too, and it kind of was this year, too. The other four recordings were really They're great. all worth hearing, but not, yeah, they're all worth <laughs> not hearing. the four questions. Yeah, but the one that won, I don't know. Well, listen to it and decide for yourself. Decide for yourself. Okay, best. Now, this is outside of the jazz category. Now, this is best contemporary instrumental album. Uh, we were going for uh, Americana, Gregoire Marais, Romain Calan, and Bill Frisell, but the winner was, as always, Snarky Puppy. They're another, you know, Grammy uh, favorite. They, they always win when they have a, a record um, um, nominated. And this was okay. I mean, it was good. I like Snarky Puppy actually a lot, but this. This particular live recording, I don't, I don't feel like it really caught them, you know? Yeah, I'm not a big fan. The musicianship is is excellent, and the recording yeah. here is great. The two I enjoyed musically most was the Americana, which is very relaxing and subtle and makes really good use of Bill Frisell, and yeah. the harmonica is lovely there. And then I thought the atmosphere of the John Batiste was really fun. Yeah. So if you're looking for something upbeat, uh, that's got a lot of crowd enjoyment too because it's a live performance that was a fun album 
Yeah, I want to mention, John Batiste was also nominated in the New Age category, interestingly wow. enough. Um, Has he been doing Yanni transcriptions or something? I haven't heard this record, actually. I should probably listen to it and see what it's like. But it's with a, another... Uh, I should look it up so I know what I'm talking about. Um, it was with another um, mu- musician. They, it was like a duo. And, John um, Tesh. No, it wasn't John Tesh. <laughs> <laughs> It was. I can tell you in a minute. Here we go. <laughs> Once I open up all these um, these windows here, it was with um, Corey Wong, Corey Wong and John Batiste. The album was called Meditation. So I guess it's just this chilled out, it's a very um, new agey title. Yeah, and it's also yeah. I didn't hear it though. I should give it a listen. But I do like John Batiste. That the um, the live at the, the Village Vanguard record was really nice. There's a lot of good piano lot. playing in a variety yeah. of styles there. Yeah, before we move on, I'd like to mention, in Best New Age Album, the winner was uh, Jim Kimo West with his album More Guitar Stories. Now, Jim Kimo West is a um, slack key guitarist, and uh, he does these kind of chill sort of. Um, he's he's got a, he's got a small ensemble around him, and he uh, does these kind of little chill kind of works. I, I don't know; they're kind of unclassifiable. This could have really been in contemporary instrumental if it really wanted to be, but they put it in new age. And uh, it's it's an album worth hearing. I would recommend it every, to anybody who's needs to uh, unwind. Let's say after a hard day, it was really slacking nice. their keys. Yeah, if you want to slacken your keys, yeah, that could be a, this could be a good way to do it. More guitar stories. Jim Kimo West, winner of the best new age album. Okay, and I guess that takes us. Uh, oh, one more. Um, point that I wanted to make um, Gregory Porter his album All Rise was nominated in the uh, R&B category this year rather than the um, jazz vocal where he belongs and I think he given that Kurt Elling won it well they might have picked him anyway but I think Gregory Porter would have had an excellent chance of winning the Grammy in that category but they put him in the R&B category to give him more exposure because um most people, I get more people listen to R&B than listen to jazz. Uh, that won't be the case if we have anything to do about it in the next few years. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can, uh, if we can, um, you know, get people listening to, you know, more, let's say, complicated or more. Um, I don't say complicated. That sounds awful. So so off-putting. More. Um, oh, music with more activity happening. Let's say or more depth to it. Not that R&B doesn't have depth, please. I don't want any hate mail. Um, but, uh, okay. Anyway, Gregory Porter did not win the R&B award. That went to John Legend, okay, for his album, which is kind of sad. I would have liked to have seen Gregory walk away with that. He's got a great voice. I recommend All Rise, Gregory Porter. Give it a listen. Yeah, that's a good one. I enjoyed the previous recordings, especially, what was it, Back to the Alley? Uh, Back to the Alley, and the other one before that was Liquid Spirit. Liquid they Spirit. were both fantastic. Back to the Alley yeah. was, is my favorite one so far because of the sparseness of the arrangements. Right. But I do feel that his new album, his voice actually sounds stronger and more confident. Yeah. The arrangements we, mostly work for me, but there's a lot of production on there, which is one of the reasons I think it was gone into the R&B category. There's more horn arrangements yeah. and you know other backing tracks and things in there. And I did enjoy it, especially I thought his his voice is really powerful, uh, more so than the previous album. Yeah, we had we we had talked about this before, and we said that his um 
his talent lies in his timbre because he's got a really beautiful sound. Yes, timbre, um, and in his original songs, his interesting intervals, they're very different. The, yeah. the jumps in his melodies are unique compared to what we usually hear. And yeah. the combination of that, and he sings with a real honesty. Yeah. That makes his, his recordings unique, so... That's true. And also, I think he's come a, quite a long way as a singer since the uh, Take Me to the Alley album. I think he's actually a much better vocalist all around on this album as far yeah, as like He sounds so much more confident with yeah. the way he hits the notes and he really uh, puts the volume out. And it works with the larger ensemble. Uh, he'll be around. It, it's a shame he lost to John Legend, but uh, he'll be back for more. Yeah, John Legend is more on the uh, the pop side of things. He's mm-hmm. he's an R&B singer, but he's kind of more on the, you know, he's he gets radio play or whatever passes for that these days um yeah by the way gregory porter he also did a record um of nat king cole covers which i was kind of Ill, i think it was kind of ill-advised he's because when you hear the songs you think oh nat king cole was so much better but um i think that might have uh kind of done something with him and he because he sounds really good on this album a lot could be okay yeah i mean yeah. His voice is not the same as Nat King Cole's voice, yeah. so what suits his strengths is something different. But if it's one of his idols and something yeah. he enjoys, then so yeah. be it. Okay, on to the classical Grammys. We have Best Orchestral Performance went to Charles Ives, Complete Symphonies, Los Angeles Philharmonic, Gustavo Dudamel, Conductor. Uh, we wanted Copeland in this category, but uh, I, I'm happy with this. This was a really, um, I think this was a good choice. It's, it's got four symphonies on it to the Copeland, only the one. But uh, yeah, I, I can, I can, I can handle it. I think more people need to listen to Ives' music. So if that makes them do it, that's a good thing. Yeah, great performance here. Uh, yeah. I just biased towards the Copeland. Because, yeah, we both like that a lot. Yeah, and Ives, I just, although you've, understand how his growth as a composer went when you listen to these symphonies in order. I don't like all of them as much as I enjoy just listening to the Copeland. So that's based more on my preference for the material than the actual performance. Uh, So these are very excellent performances. Yeah, Ives will very much push your ear, you know, much in the same way as uh, democracy will push your patience. <laughs> but I think paycheck. I think that's kind of the point. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, he uh, he really loved. He was he was like a great like believer in the American experiment, and uh, he, you know he kind of told it as he saw it in his um, symphonies. And I really think we could all benefit from listening to them and uh, doing the work to. Um, to really hear them, okay? What's happening in them? This is a lot, and it's and it's not always easy to to listen to. Well, yeah, right, as, best... and as we said, or well, before we mm. just move on, there's yeah. it, it's uh, American heavy in the choices here. Yes, but I, I feel that now. How many Americans do you think know Ives or even Copeland, uh, the average yeah. person? So we uh, are not a classical music listening no. nation. So are if we? we get some exposure for these these noted composers and performers, then uh, I'm not against it. Uh, at least the Americans can do is recognize their own uh, composers in these areas. So Right. And really all around the world, I think people should hear these this music. Yeah. I mean, it represents us, you know, and, and you know, it's our kind of like little contribution to this big um, classical thing 
the firmament. Okay. What our yeah there, but you know, as a nation, if let's we say it's not me. Identify me and you had nothing ourselves. to do with it. Yes. <laughs> to, speaking, okay, of speaking of Americans, of, the next category. Yeah, okay. Um, Gershwin, Porgy and Bess by the Metropolitan Opera Chorus and Orchestra conducted by David Robertson. Soloist Frederick Ballantyne, Angel Blue, Denise Graves, Latonia Moore, Eric Owens. And I hadn't heard this one, if you remember, because um, it wasn't available in streaming. And uh, it's only available on CD, I guess. Their I, own I label, I think. I believe there's some label. clips of live performances that you can see online, but right. the recording itself is on the Metropolitan label, so you've got to buy it yeah. if you want to hear it. And I think I'm going to now. I mean, it's kind of, um, I'd like to hear it. I love the opera. Um, yeah. I'm very wrong? familiar with the Simon Rattle um, recording with, um, it was it Willard White was on that one as Porgy. Um, I'm just yeah, off the top of my head. Okay, but uh, this is a newer one. It'd be nice to hear if it's, if it's that good. I'd like to hear it. I had picked Handel Agrippina because of the performance of Joyce Di Donato, who is fantastic on this record. Also worth hearing if you want to hear a Baroque opera. But we went for Gershwin. Great tunes. You're just going to... This is just um, some of the best American music writing ever. <laughs> okay, Gershwin, poor game best. Some really unforgettable tunes. A lot of them became jazz standards and part of, are part of the great American songbook now. Indeed. All right, best choral performance. I called this the weakest group in yeah, the Yeah, I know uh, that you're uh, a big fan and, of uh, this one. Yeah, and Daniel Poor. Um, it's Richard Daniel Poor, right? The Passion of Yeshua. This is the um, the uh, uh, Jesus Passion. Okay, so about his crucifixion, um, sort of like in the style, in the uh, spirit of the Johann Sebastian Bach. St. Matthew Passion, St. John Passion. Uh, only this one kind of had more of a Middle Eastern... Um, yeah, it's odd. It has a more of a... It, it kind of goes into more of Middle Eastern perspectives, you know, in the text, but not in the music. That's what's weird to me. It's it's The, the setting is just pretty ordinary, actually, I thought. Um, but this is the winner. It's, it's really very well executed. I can't really kind of say anything about it. I kind of thought that uh, maybe Kostalski Requiem should have won this one, but... Daniel Poor is the winner. There you go. Next, best chamber music small ensemble performance went to Contemporary Voices by the Pacifica Quartet. And you have to talk about this one because uh, do you remember? Yeah, as I said uh, last time, I, I remember listening to this. Um, the, the These three Pulitzer Prize winning pieces, um, the one, the Shulamit Rong String Quartet, I... I found it, well, after reading the theme of uh, Felix Nussbaum, it was expectedly dark. Uh, I did like the Jennifer Higdon's voice somewhat, especially the third movement. And uh, then there's the uh, Ellen Taff Zwillich Quintet with alto saxophone and string quartet, which is kind of unusual. And it was a bit playful, so I, you know, I enjoyed that piece. But of these nominees, I believe I preferred the Dover Quartet, the Schumann yeah. Quartet's best. We went traditional um, here. Yeah, it it's traditional, although some people think that maybe Schumann, the Schumann compositions aren't always performed to the same yeah. standard just because of the, he, the way he probably emulated his uh, mentors in composition. But uh, these performances are... Are great uh, here, but yeah. there's nothing, you know, new or innovative about 
the, the program there. So I guess I can see why they went with the uh, collection of these Pulitzer Prize winning pieces. Yeah, but, again, uh, all American composers too. That and, said, uh, um, I mean, the other choices, the Brooklyn Rider one was sort of taking a chance on breaking up the Beethoven with yeah. these uh, contemporary compositions. It's sort of maybe too adventurous in programming for uh, most people. And then there was the Hearn uh, one that we discussed that uh, is uh, not really <laughs> classical music. And uh, the other one also, the Heinz Fields. Yeah, this is sort of, uh, to me, kind of new agey. So I I feel like the two real choices in what I would consider chamber music were between the Pacifica and the Dover Quartet. So, Okay. Next one, best classical instrumental solo. And we were delighted to learn, and quite surprised too, delightfully surprised to learn that the soloist Richard O'Neill won this for his performance of Christopher Theophanidis' piece, Concerto for Viola and Chamber Orchestra. Neither of, uh, of us had heard this of this composer before, let alone this work. And it came as this big surprise. We loved it. We said, we hope this one wins, but we thought maybe Thomas Addis this piece uh, would win with Kirill Gerstein playing it. But um, no, that didn't happen. The the one we liked the most won. I'm happy about this. I want to recommend this composer to everybody. This was yeah. uh, really great. His music is very accessible for modern music. There's lots of elements that you can identify right away and follow themes. Uh, great use of timbre and other sort of uh, things to pull you in. And both of these, uh, the the viola one, but the violin concerto is also awesome. And uh, yeah, Albany Symphony, great. Uh, yeah, interesting great. recording. And I'm going to listen to this some more. Uh, it's going to take a few lessons to get everything out of it. So Yeah, there's also a great uh, concerto for violin on it as well. The, that's the, uh, the the work it's paired with. The whole, the whole album is really great. Okay. Best classical solo vocal album went to a war. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of interesting. It went to Ethel Smythe, British composer from the early 20th century. Um, her a symphony called The Prison, and it's a vocal symphony. It, it almost kind of um, it go. It kind of unfolds like a so like a theater piece, really. Um, but um, I. I liked the the idea, the story, the text, but I thought that the um, the writing wasn't terribly interesting to me. But it's a beautiful recording. First of all, it's on Shandos Records and it's an SACD. Um, you know, it's a very clean sounding recording. Performances are all good. Um, I just found the the music not terribly interesting. But you know, it's it's new. It's it's what's well, not new. It's from the early 20th century, but it's 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 music that you just don't hear very often. And um, this is, this might be the only recording we get of it for quite a while. So I guess it's a good um, addition to the uh, catalog. Certainly, I would have chosen Cecilia Bartoli for Farinelli in this, but she's very decorated as far as awards go already. Okay, next one: best classical compendium went to Michael Tilson Thomas for From the Diary of Anne Frank and Meditations on Rilke. All right. Now, you you kind of had a lot to say about this last week. Um, we liked uh, a few of these. We liked the Addis, Conducts Addis, and we liked the yes. Cerebrier. 
And I liked Sadia Ho's, you know, Kaya Sadia Ho's album. But Michael Tilson Thomas winds up going home with it. Um, I didn't really think much of this one either. So No, and again, really... more recitations. Recitations. Yes. Yeah. I'm not too... There, there are certain... Yeah. I'm trying to think of classical works with recitations that I like. Um, yeah, I kind of... There aren't many. I, there's a Debussy piece um, uh, called Bilitis. There, there's the... Th- Trois Chansons de Bilitis, but then there's another um, work of incidental music, and somebody like narrates in between the uh, the music, mm. and I kind of like that. That was okay. Yeah, for it was me, a little exotic. The Addis, Saiho, Cerebri. I enjoyed all of those um, more than this one. Um, yeah, uh, what can yeah. you say? They must have had some reason they chose it, but I don't yeah. know what it Michael is. Michael Tilson Thomas. He's uh, he's been around forever. Yeah, he's a maybe. great champion of American music as well. He's been uh, involved in it really from the beginning, you know. All right, last best contemporary classical composition, and we were both. This is the other one that really thrilled us. So we were delighted to see that Christopher Rouse's Symphony Number no. Five, which is based on Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Five. I guess if you die, you win. Um, yeah, <laughs> basically in jazz or classical. Not that it's undeserved. This piece is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and. Uh, I've listened to a lot of Rouse music that you've turned me on to. And, I like Christopher uh, Rouse is one of my favorite American composers, certainly, and, and among my favorite. Again, composers, I, I think know. we mentioned this before, but mm. since this is his fifth symphony, he sort of tributes uh, Beethoven's fifth by working elements of that in. So even if you're yeah. not a fan of uh, really modern classical music, you can approach this by listening for little motifs and figures that he sort of uses from Beethoven's Fifth at different junctures in this composition, uh, which is kind of fun to look for those. And then as all of his works, there's some, there's a really lot of nice brass and percussion and the real bombastic timpani uh, part in there is a lot of fun. So I I like this. Bombastic timpani in his music. Um, Incidentally, uh, Rouse did compose a sixth symphony completed in 2019, the year of his death. So I guess we'll eventually get a recording of that as Has well. Has anyone recorded it yet? No. Oh, uh, wow. I think I guess it's too new. They take uh, too oh, much yeah. time. But uh, there, there is a lot of Rouse that remains unrecorded, including a gigantic Requiem. I would love to hear that. That's never been recorded either. That was um, composed in 2001, 2002. It's getting, you know, the years are passing. Let, let's hear yes. it. You know, come on. Get it uh, out there. Come on. People, get a recording out there. All right. It's a, you know part of the I heard um, somebody somebody told me that um, getting a contemporary work recorded was one of the reasons you hear all these old pieces like by Mozart and Beethoven all the time is well first of all people want to hear it and second of all you don't have to pay any like royalties to record them because they're all you know they're all you know they're all out out there free you know right. for anybody who wants to record them but with a modern piece you got to get the publisher to kind of you know, agree, and then all these fees have to be paid, and it's apparently a lot of work. And so, and I guess it takes an army of people to get it accomplished, which is really sad. I mean, there is a lot of you know good classical music being written that we're just not going to hear our recordings because uh, of the difficulties involved in um, setting it all up to be recorded. Um, <laughs> never mind a uh, live performance. All right, and there we are, the Grammys. We uh, 
we can put this away for a year. Yeah, let's put that away for a year or go two. Go back to, um, yeah. <laughs> Depending on the nominees. Yeah. So, oh, by the way, if anyone's interested, the record of the year went to Taylor Swift. Surprise, surprise. They, you know, I think only three people are capable of winning record of the year. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, or, you know, I don't know, some some rapper or something. I don't, I don't know. It's it's It seems to be the two of them. Anyway, let's cleanse the musical palette and get on yeah. to things that we are really interested in listening to. Yeah. And hopefully our listeners are too. By the way, if you're a listener to our podcast, and in the past few weeks we've had a lot of listeners around the world in places where we don't know anyone. Yeah, and pretty exciting. So they must be new to us and our podcast. So the thing we haven't received are any comments or feedback really yet. So if you're out there, we've had listeners in Colombia, Israel, Morocco, uh, please write a comment. Let us know who you are and what you listen to so we can get to know who our audience is. And let us know on the what platform you listen on. Uh, it's very interesting to us. Yeah, also, if you want if you want us to talk about something that, you know, you like or that you want to know more about, let us know. We, we'll be glad to uh, at least look into it, <laughs> okay? And, yeah, it's really thrilling to see, like, people from all over the world kind of pop up on the uh, – Yeah, you know, I just the, hope um, they're not looking for other types of adult content. <laughs> they wouldn't be tempted based on our logo or name, would they? Yeah, no, that, I'm sure that they're was, more sophisticated than that. That was the intention to draw people in that way. We're we're terrible. Yeah, we're I terrible. admit it. Anyway, this Guilty week we've got, as charged. We've got a collection of three classical and three jazz albums that we yeah we're back to our normal out. format. And uh, I, I like all of these, and uh, we're going to go in time order to start, and we'll just do the classical first and the jazz after that. So. What's our first classical pick this week, Mike? Okay, so we're always going to start with um, Baroque era, if we have a, if we choose a Baroque recording for the hey, week. Because if it ain't Baroque, don't yeah, fix it. Yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to, I had a good line about that, and I can't remember. <laughs> I, I should have written it down. <laughs> you can handle it later, right? Yeah. Make sure, <laughs> make sure you don't break it, or something. Yes. I don't remember what it was. Anyway. Because you know, anyway, the uh, the recording is not necessarily in the Baroque style, but it's um by the pianist Piotr Andrzejewski, the Polish pianist, and uh, a very unusual one at that. He generally puts out these really adventurous um, um programs, and this one is pretty interesting. It's a Johann Sebastian Bach, Well Tempered Clavier, Book Two, but this isn't is not a traversal. Of the uh, of the twenty four preludes and fugues in that book, um, rather he's taken twelve of them. They're all from book two, nothing from book one, and he sort of um, programmed them in an order that uh, he felt um, said something that presented a whole program as opposed to uh, he changes the order for work. the mood that he thinks they create, right? Uh, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is, because usually this comes across, it's uh, in all the chromatic keys. You, you hear the 24 chromatic keys normally when you play this, and it's more of a pedantic work, but nevertheless, it's still interesting. But he's tried to make them into character pieces here through his um, 
you know, um, ordering of them and his performance. Okay, he kind of wants it to, there to be sort of a, a musical narrative. And um, I have to say, I, I like his playing a lot. He's taken a few um, interesting tempos here, some, some very fast, some very slow, kind of put me in the mind of Glenn Gould, who sort of did the same thing, except that he didn't um, arrange them like this. And um, I don't know what, what I don't know that I have all that much to say about this, except that it was enjoyable. I liked it a lot. I like his playing. Um, it's it's a bit unusual, a little off the beaten track. If you know these works, it's a good way to rediscover them. Yeah, I've listened to them before in sort of you know just the usual sequence. Yeah, and well, you sort of tune out after a little while just because in fact, they seem I usually like have to like stop exercises, and then yeah. go back like the, another day. I can't really listen to all of them. But this program order. he's selected and the way he brings out the contrasts in them, all within yeah. a very subtle performance. This is, the dynamics are very restrained here. So, yeah. you know, you can not expect a lot of, you know, fortes and, and different dynamics here. So right. you can sort of yeah. set the level and then the the program is a selection and you can sort of navigate with him through them. And for me, it was a different experience than listening to other recordings of them. So I quite enjoyed, you know, you read, you, you'll, if you read about it, you'll see why they think, you know, this is a, maybe a bit daring, especially to do something with Bach. But if you just approach it as a new listening experience, then it's actually quite enjoyable to, you know, follow his sort of navigation through them. So I, I like this recording a lot. Yeah, me too. People generally want to lay down their interpretation of, of um, these works, like say, or something like that. But he's um, he's going for something a little more meta here, you know, mm. just his, his own sort of uh, idea about it. He says that he arranged them, some of them fit according to key, but then he wanted contrast between them too. And in some cases he provides that. A lot of the um the ones I really that really stood out for me were the ones he played very slowly, like more slowly mm -hmm. than you usually hear. Because all of the um the relationships between the counterpoint really registers. You, know, you get a lot of time to just kind of absorb it and hear it. And he's still very skilled at keeping the melodic line going even at these slower speeds. I always kind of feel like if you if you're playing, say, a melodic line, especially in a, in say, a fugue or a counterpoint, you, if you play it too slowly, it kind of gets like, um, you know, being on a bicycle where so if it's not moving fast enough, it'll just tip over. Uh, but you never really feel like you're in danger of that sort of thing here. And then there are some that are taking a quite a clip, I think, for the, um, the, uh, the contrast. Now, the thing about this album is what he's done is kind of. I hate to use the word intellectual because I don't want to turn people off, but there's a lot to think about and hear on this. And having only a week to listen to it really isn't enough. I, I really feel like this is an album that needs to be lived with for a bit to to draw more out of it. I don't feel like I've really heard the um, all it has to offer yet. And I'm really looking forward to hearing this for the rest of the year. I have the feeling we're going to be talking about this again at the end of the year when the uh, you know the year and year end lists come out. All right, so there you go. That's what we have to say about Piotr Andrzejewski's album. Recommended. Well, everything we're going to talk about from now on is going to be recommended, I guess. Well, not necessarily. No recitations from here on out. No recitations from here. I don't think there will be recitations unless it's um, some stray piece that worked its way onto an album that, that I want to recommend or something like that. Okay.
The next album I've got is uh, Works for Violin and Piano, composed by Alfred Schnitka, the Russian composer from the 20th century, post-war 20th century. Uh, Daniel Hope is the violinist, and the um, the pianist is uh, Alexei Botvinov, okay? And he is, he is Russian. Okay, now... Schnitka, I, I really wanted to talk about this because Schnitka holds like kind of a, an interesting place in my whole musical experience. When I was in college in the 80s, um, I, was, I was in Boston at Boston University. And um, in the late 80s, there was a, a U.S.-Soviet exchange of composers. And we got to hear, um, and I was working at um, uh, classical radio at the time, WBUR in Boston. And um, we we had recorded. I was working as an engineer, so I got to record and um, master in the studio these um, you know, recordings of these concerts. And um, so I got to hear all these uh, contemporary Russian composers. Now this was towards the end of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was still in existence. Um, for me, learning about music, I didn't go to school for it at the time. Um, I was really at that time just discovering classical music and jazz as well, you know, college wound up being like a really musically liberating time for me. And um, hearing these um, works, when, when Schnicka's music came up, I took to it immediately. Two of the pieces I remember, now, I don't know that I heard them at these concerts or that I later heard them on other recordings and just conflated them or whatever, um, appear on this on this album. One of them is the Suite in the Old Style, which is a... Um, it's, it's practically a Baroque composition. I guess it's got some uh, modern harmony in it, but it certainly um, comes across as a suite of Baroque dances. And uh, it really is in that style. So I took to that right away. I was like, oh, a contemporary composer. Schnitka was contemporary at the time. He died um, in, I believe, 1996. I can check that. Hold on. No, I can't see it. Okay. Yeah, maybe around... 1996-1998 okay and the other work that featured there that really like kind of lit my fire was um, uh, Sonata for Violin and Piano Number no. 1 which is also on this album by Daniel Hope uh, that work um, what really struck me was at the time I was trying to figure out contemporary music and contemporary music from Darmstadt was really hard it was all dodecaphonic 12 tone um, you know, this were, these were the days of Stockhausen and Pierre Boulez. And um, I really didn't get their music until much, much later when I started studying about music and things like that. But Schnitka's music was kind of, it was a little odd. It was modern and old at the same time. And that really intrigued me. Um, it's one of the things that really drew me to classical music in the first place. Because it's, um, you're hearing, when, when, say when you hear, say, a Beethoven symphony, you're hearing modern people put their modern give their modern take on this very old piece of music so it's it exists in the present but it's from the past so it's there's almost like this continuity um you know between the past and the and, and the present with it and I, that that sort of speaks to me schnitke's music does something similar it kind of uh, ex except in reverse it's modern but it looks back to the past a lot and yet so it's it's hard to explain you really need to hear it um the sonata for violin and piano um, at the time, I played the piano too, and I was, and I really, I really took to this this piece. I especially like the uh, third movement with the just crashing 
but very sonorous piano chords followed by a really quiet chord as the violin plays a melody over it and uh, it has this really the third movement has this really beautiful ending with this the piano playing in the very highest register and the violin playing this really sweet melody on its harmonics it's a really striking piece um it moved me the first time I heard it, and uh, this recording of it moved me too, especially the third movement. Uh, I'm talking about the Sonata for Violin and Piano. All right, so, you know, so when I see Schnicka's music, I just kind of want to relive that time. It really felt like a big discovery for me back in the 80s, and this is probably the, these are, these are probably the two best recordings of these two pieces that I've ever heard. So uh, I'm really happy to have heard this. The other works on this um, album are... Is a polka and a tango, and they're pretty straightforward. The sonata for violin and piano is the um, probably the heaviest piece. Well, it's followed by a madrigal in memoriam of Oleg Kagan, a uh, violinist, um, and um, I think right. And uh, this is um, I think for solo violin, and it's um, very very slow and moving. So there's a lot of a uh, counterpoint in it. Notice the title, madrigal. Again, something from the past. Um, and uh, then the mood lightens with this um, congratulatory rondo, which I guess, which which is really um, cheerful. And then it ends with a really quirky <laughs> a destruction of Silent of, Night. Of Silent Night, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which I rather enjoyed. I thought I thought it was really clever. I liked it. I don't know about clever, but it it was, it was kind of compelling. Anyway, any thoughts on this, uh, Russ? What do you well, think? This was something new for me because I didn't know this composer at all, yeah. and so. And for the first several uh, pieces, as you said, he's playing things from the past with slightly modern types of uh, interpretations, maybe some harmonies and different things. But I quite enjoyed it, very melodic. Uh, hmm. And then when I got to the sonata, I thought, whoa, now we've hit something different. And <laughs> so at that point, I decided, okay, now it's time to do a little research on uh, this composer. And apparently... He had been, you know, experimenting with serialism in these sort of uh, pattern structures of modern, right? The things compositions, that were, I was really twelve tone, to really... and things like that, which I don't usually enjoy too much. And so the first two movements of the sonata were kind of a struggle for me. Uh, they didn't have much that appeals to what I like, but I was interested that you just mentioned about the third movement because yeah, the, the third movement is. Equally as modern, however, he has found some very beautiful things to accentuate in that movement. And that one really drew me in. And uh, so I, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, I'm not sure about the Silent Night myself, because <laughs> if you're going to deconstruct... It, it kind of made me laugh, really. I liked it's sort it, of like, you know? to me, it was sort of like taking a beautiful cabinet with veneer and just ripping it off uh, to do that with a, a melody that everyone knows. <laughs> I, I guess it's sort of maybe why guess, he did I it, guess it, but. I guess it put me in mind of the, there was a, in the eighties, there was an art of noise video um, where um, the, I think it's the band or are just uh, destroying like a piano throughout the video. They're kind of taking right. axes and to it and just, you know, just taking it apart. And I think it got, that kind of, that video, this kind of reminded me of that video. This is um, something maybe I'd like to listen to sort of in January when I'm completely burnt out of all Christmas sort of music <laughs> and I want to see it just ripped apart. 
Um, And and then maybe I could appreciate it intellectually a little bit more. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, There's a, he seems to have almost a uh, split personality in his uh, composing style. And so I'd be open to listening to some more works from his compositions. Yeah. He, for me, he was really the, um, the connection for me between the, the music I was kind of, you know, the classics I was getting to know Mozart and all that and uh, contemporary music. He was like the link that kind of helped me to get into composers like, you know, Boulez and the, the really, you know, the really very intellectual composers of the post-war period, you know, Boulez and um, uh, who did I mention? Stockhausen, who I'm still not really a big fan of, but um, it, it takes a lot of work to listen to those there. <laughs> that's an inter- this is an interesting contrast in styles. And then that's what drew me in to understand what he was, what his approach was and, and how he had uh, developed his style. So yeah, it's worth a listen. Of- at the end of his life in the 80s, he was living in um, Hamburg in Germany. And I, I always wonder how he got there because the Soviets were still, you know, the, the KGB hated him, apparently. any Anybody who had anything original to say was was pretty much um, frowned on in the Soviet Union by the government, not necessarily by the people. And uh, But a lot of those voices got out and um, wound up kind of doing something rather unique. Um, and they still do to this day. Um, the old um, Soviet satellite uh, countries like Estonia really sure. are among the best, making some of the best music, the best composed music uh, in the world right now, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, I'm always interested to hear what they have to to say. Okay. All right. So recommended. Please, well, these are all recommended. Okay. The last one, this is a pretty much self-recommending album, but I really wanted to talk about it, is Hilary Hahn, the violinist, American violinist Hilary Hahn's new album called Paris or Paris, if you happen to be French. All right, this is a, an album. Um, it, the reason it's called Paris, and um, there are actually several connections, is that it sort of documents her, um, uh, her, I guess, lifetime of work with the Orchestre Philharmonique de Radio France. I hope I oh, said that right. I read Conducted that by the Finnish also these works Mikko all Frank. had their premiere in Paris, um, yes, that that too, or they were kind of commissioned there, or and there's even there's only one French composer on the um on the album, Ernest Chausson, uh, his poem for violin and orchestra, which actually has a Russian sort of um connection. I, I think it's um it's after it's kind of the narrative of it, the musical narrative is after a Russian short story, and um. If I could find my notes here, I can tell you what it is. I think it's by Taruskin, um, if I am correct. I don't know. Oh, no, it's Turgenev, sorry. What am I saying? Who's Taruskin? I don't even know who he is. Turgenev, short story, The Song of Triumphant Love, which I've never read. Yeah, it's his cousin. <laughs> Turgenev, everybody's related. All right. And... um. Again, this is a work I had heard before. In fact, just last year, um, the um, the French soprano Veronique Jeans did like um, oh no, that was a different piece. That was also Chasson. Sorry. Okay, let, let's not let me back up and get out of that. This particular performance though really stood out for me. Um, one of the things I noticed about Hilary Hahn's playing is it's very prepared. Okay, this is not a uh, violinist that uh, leaves things to chance. Now that's. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. It's uh, just a really beautiful performance. And the thing that came out 
to me about this particular performance of the Chanson Poem is that it's very, um, it, it, it sort of has the timing that she uses, like the, the pauses, the way she, you know, stops playing and then starts again. You know, it's, it's all very well timed, almost like the way like a comedian will time their jokes to make you laugh. You know, she's kind of really timing her entrances and exits and pauses for the, the, the greatest dramatic effect. And, uh, it really, it really impressed me a lot. I was noticing that, uh, about this performance, just the first time I was hearing it, it stood out from other ones I had heard in the past, which are all very, you know, they're very good, but this one's kind of, it's pretty special. After that, um, she does, um, Sergei Prokofiev's first violin concerto. And this is a pretty wild piece. And, you know, Hilary Hahn is really one of the best violinists out there, and you really hear that in this piece. It's very fast. It's kind of wild. She, there's some. She's got this big tone when she needs it, and then there are just times where she's doing these amazing runs, and the tone like stays yeah. consistent. I and know this just piece. These... I have several recordings of it, but I don't. Yeah. I rarely listen to them. I've listened to most of them once. She makes everything she plays sound just beautiful. I had never yeah. realized how lovely the Prokofiev could sound yeah until I it's, heard it's this actually recording a pretty brutal piece in points and she brings that out too but there are just certain runs that she does at these really quiet tempos that are just but the, the tone just stays consistent mm. it's really amazing I'm just interested in anything she plays really alright now the centerpiece of this album is um, Inuyani Rautavara this is another composer who died recently he died in 2016 because these were written for her weren't they they were pieces. being written for her, yes. Right. Now, and that's, it's a little bit of a convoluted story. She wanted a violin concerto from Rautavada. And um, she actually hadn't, I, th- I think she hadn't met him at this point, but Miko Frank knew him being, they're both in the Finnish kind of music world. And uh, Frank um, talked to Rautavara about it. And Rautavara convinced Frank... Uh, to do like a multi-movement serenade instead of a violin concerto. For some reason, he didn't want to do another violin concerto. He was already pretty sick at the time. And I guess he got to work on him, and um, he eventually died. And they figured that he had never gotten around to doing it, so they just lost their work. But when, um, I guess, his estate or whatever were going through his papers, they found these, this two-movement work. It was called Deux Serenades, which means two serenades. That was the title at the time. I guess he would have changed the title if he had written more. Um, and the uh, first serenade was complete. It's called Serenade pour mon amour. And um, this one's also based on a on a text. Maybe that's the one I was thinking of before by Turgenev. I'm not sure. Um, and the second one was written out. And it was orchestrated about to about halfway... And then that was it. The rest, there wasn't even a sketch. The rest was just the piano part, you know, like a, you know, of how the whole, the rest of the work would go. So they got one of um, his students, Kalevi Aho, to um, finish the, um, he, who, was, who was a great composer himself. He's a little younger than Rautavada, um, to finish the orchestration, and which he did. And then we have these uh, performances of these two very lovely works. Um, very much in Rautavara's style. They're they're both pretty. Well, the first one is really kind of slow and melting and kind of romantic, and then the second one has like a a lighter 
orchestration to it. It's sort of um, it's kind of a nice send off. These are really the the last works that uh, Rautavara ever wrote, and it was nice for me to hear it. I'm, a, I'm actually a big uh, fan of his music. Um, I, I'll recommend a few to you. Uh, the first, if you don't, if you're unfamiliar with Rautavara, the best place to start is with a piece called Cantus Arcticus. Um, which features recorded bird sounds with the orchestra, and it's just really beautiful. It kind of sounds like this awful um, 20th century, you know, concept piece, but it's not. It actually is very surprisingly beautiful and memorable. Uh, give that a listen. That's not on this recording. I'm just that's just a good entrance into his work. Um, these these pieces, I think they're they're lovely. I mean, you'll like them when you hear them. But if you've never heard Rautavara's music, um, they also they they kind of feel like a culmination of his later period when he was doing slower, more uh, meditative um, music. Um, good good other good works to listen to are the seventh and eighth symphonies, both really really gorgeous works. And uh, so the, the these are world premieres, and there you go. Yeah, That's I like this I recording. That. I. I think these are actually a good place to start with Rotvara because if you, you start think, with huh? his symphonies they're they're big and it's true, expansive yeah. and for me when I, that's what I started with and I was sort of lost in the fog with them for a little while uh, yeah but, you had uh, the uh, Cantus Arcticus first uh, yeah. that was that was my introduction to his music but actually. here yeah these Back are accessible in, in this program and oh just for me uh, when I listen to uh, individual classical instruments just based on the sound but probably my favorite string instrument is cello maybe a lot mm. of people are like that and, and sometimes yeah. depending on the artist or the program violin can get a little bit on my edge mm. from the tonality of it or the way of playing that I, I, I'm, I can listen to one work but I don't want to listen to a whole program but uh, Hans playing is just so beautiful yeah, uh, I true. think she could play anything, and it would just sound, you know, completely polished on all passages, regardless of the tempos or the emotions conveyed. So I listened to this right from start to the end, and enjoyed all of it. And I think her, you know, her reputation is well deserved. And these, you know, these pieces are very uh, interesting. And although there's a lot of variety here. The, her sort of approach and musicianship just ties them all in together. So yeah, it is a great uh, recording of violin works and uh, a good entrance into Rotvara, I think, as well. I guess so. I think um, the Rotvara, though, I wonder, but I'm familiar with a lot of his other music. I wonder how much these two um, pieces would stick, like the first time you hear them. Are you going to go away thinking about them? That was the case with me with Cantus Arcticus. The first time I heard it, I was like, wow, that was really, you know, really something. It was really kind of unique. All right. So anyway, that's my recommendation. Mm. I think, yeah, I think he, he reuses a lot of um, sort of melodies and, and things like that. Like he'll like stick in like sort of things you've heard in other works. You know, not not entire sections or anything, but just little fragments of melody, and they kind of recall they have the other work if you've heard it. And there's a there's a bit of that in these. I, I recognize you know certain fragments of melody from other works in it. So you know that kind of it it gets into a more intellectual end. If you don't know the other works, I guess hearing them is great. But then when you hear the other works, you'll you know then you can start putting the puzzle together. It's, it's sort of nice. 
All right, so highly recommended this one too. Okay, so those are my three uh, recommendations for the week, everybody. We have uh, some jazz coming up now. That's right. From Russ. Yeah. It's jazz time. And I dove a little bit deeper this week. Uh, After having to review the industry and critics' picks in especially classical music, but also jazz too, and do a lot of that listening we had to do to get through all those nominations, I wanted to look and see what was new out there in jazz because I hadn't looked at anything in a few weeks. So I've found some tasty cuts for everyone. And I hope you enjoy these. Yes. So first up is the John Patitucci Trio. And John Patitucci is a big name. You may have associated him with uh, Chick Corea. Uh, Back when I was a youngster in high school, I went to see the Chick Corea Electric Band. I had second row seats and I looked up and there was John Patitucci and Chick Corea. I believe Dave Weckl was on drums. And then a huge South African guy named John Smythe sat down in front of me and turned around and talked to me for most of the show. But John Patitucci has a huge resume in jazz, playing with a lot of famous musicians. And this trio intrigued me because uh, the pianist is Bill Cunliffe, uh, a pianist who I met back in the 90s a few times at a performance in then uh, jazz clinic. And he's a Grammy Award winner himself in the arranging category. And he's done work with among others, Frank Sinatra, Joe Henderson, Freddie Hubbard, and Petitucci, other than Chikoria, has worked with uh, Wayne Shorter. And the drummer here is uh, Vinny Coliuda, who mm. is uh, sort of a drummer's drummer. Uh, drummers really like his work. He's very versatile in jazz. He's played with Herbie Hancock and also Chikoria uh, with Petitucci on one live album. I believe that was the uh, live from Blue Note Tokyo back in the late 90s. And he's also done uh, some pop work with uh, Frank Zappa and Joni Mitchell and Sting. So he's a very uh, versatile drummer. Hmm. And here uh, with Bill Cunliffe, they recorded this album as sort of a not planned out project. I believe they had just a day or so to record. And so they did all the tunes from memory. Uh, other than uh, the one Chikoria tune uh, called The One Step that they had to uh, sort of write out to get through. But everything else were tunes that they were familiar with so that they could sit down in a short time. And Cunliffe commented that uh, they didn't have any sheets to work from, so they were just looking at each other and communicating while they played, which to me has always been one of the joys of piano trios because you just have three players you can really focus on the communication. As we mentioned with the Chikoria yeah. album, that mm. to me, that was the big joy of that album, to listen to the inter- interplay between them, like yeah, Bill Evans' trio too. recordings. So that's what I'm always looking for. And that element is really here. This is a oh, nice yeah. recording. And the material that they cover, we've got some interesting pieces. There are some sort of jazz uh, standards is uh, Laura, the tune. But we've got the Conception by George Shearing. We've got uh, the Korea, the One Step, as I mentioned. Miles Davis's Seven Steps to he- Seven Steps to Heaven. You and we've got George uh, Shearing. Really, I don't think that was nice. A nice little surprise. Yeah. I thought. And we've got the 
uh, Thelonious Monk tune, uh, We See. So nice material and really good interplay and a good chance to hear uh, Bill Cunliffe, who's an excellent player, inspired by these uh, other two great musicians. And so this is on Lecoq Records. And I think you mentioned that it's not available not- on CD. Yeah, not on any physical format. It's download only. But yeah, you never know. They might uh, they might come up. It's it could a come out. Label. It's a new recording. It might come out. Yeah, this is one that could easily just go under the radar, though. But these are all monster players and a very nice performance. And so I'm searching through sort of things that don't show up as new releases. This is a right. new release. It's not going under our radar, and now it's on your radar, listeners. Give it a listen. You'll love it. Yeah. Did you like this one, Mike? I did a lot. I actually, yeah, I liked your your picks a lot this week. Um, the the thing about this one and uh, the the others too, there there there's a real joy to them all. And in this mm. one again, like with the Chikoria, it um it you know the trilogy two, it the uh, interaction was really the thing I was listening to. But I also enjoyed the the piano playing a lot on on this mm. one. And this is um. It, there was a yeah I don't know how to explain it. There was a lot of space, and it was it was um, just really well thought out. Just you know chords and you know playing yeah. and things like that. He's a he's um, a he's a really great player. He's not flashy, up. but mm. I think you can tell that he's uh, an arranger in the way that yeah. he builds his chords. There you go. And, That's what I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was looking for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed this a lot. Um, again, kind of. Kind of chased all those uh, storm clouds away. Made my yes. day sunny. Yes. Yeah. All and right. Uh, Patitucci's an awesome, awesome bass player. So anything he does on acoustic or electric, it's worth worth listening to. Anyway, Lecoq, if you're listening out there, put this out on CD. I want it. <laughs> Michael, buy it. If you, <laughs> I, I buy. I have press CDs. it, and he will buy it. So. I have lots of CDs. My my house is threatening to sink into the earth's crust under the weight of the CDs. And I've asked a couple times for when you write out that will, just put the music yeah. collection in my name. So <laughs> I, yes. I need someone 20 years younger than you to include in my uh That's true. CD I do have will, a nephew. But, I don't know, I don't know what kind of music. Yeah, but he those people, to, you know, the younger people, they don't they just they don't want like yeah, physical media. They than want every, they want to just stream everything. I'm going to live for I'm going to live as long as possible. Hopefully my ears will hold out. Anyway, the yeah, me too. my second pick uh, I'm going to relate to a, another piece of news that came out uh, because as a general rule, we've decided that we, we want to generally stick to new releases of music because there's so much that uh, we could talk about that we've explored in the past or talked about together, but then we would just go on forever and ever. We're going on long enough as it is each time. However, there are things that have sort of fallen through the musical cracks that do resurface or come out, and they're worth talking about. So one news item that we saw this week was that the inventor of the cassette tape, uh, Lou yeah. Ottens, uh, a Dutchman, I believe, uh, has passed away at the age of 94. And not only did he invent the cassette tape, but he was instrumental in the development of the CD, although he is rather humble about all that. And uh, maybe some of our older listeners could uh, think back to the cassettes. Uh, Oh, I remember. Yeah. Well, the power of the cassette was it gave the ability to record music to the everyday person. Of course, 
you know, reel to reel had been around, but reel to reel was sort of the audio geeks mechanism because it was huge and, you know, those giant spools of tape to put on there. But yeah, when you got I the, distinctly remember making uh, cassette tapes of uh, my favorite songs for my right. girlfriends. You know, I used to do Make that back mix in the day. Tape. You could Make dub the tape. albums. I dubbed yeah. the albums I borrowed from the library. Yeah. Uh, and they were all great until they got a little sticky and stuck to the heads in your player. Mm-hmm. And you had a, a real spaghetti mess of uh, magnetic yeah. tape in there. And the thing about cassette, yeah, that, that was another big issue, trying to unspool all that... Uh, the tape yeah. that got, or you know, around the the spindle and the wheel that kind of oh, moved it. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, this got me thinking, and so you know, cassettes had come out, and for a while they were coexisting with albums. Yeah, and when when CD players think, came out, go ahead. Yeah, but between the uh, you know the uh, album and the CD, there was cassettes, and then there was the the Sony Walkman. That was the first really Yes, personal stereo that was ever made, and it was a really exciting thing at the time. You had this yeah. really fantastic your, sound going directly into your ears. Your own this music with device, you. yeah. yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. That later became the uh, what do you call it? The Sony Discman, and now we have us, these MP3 players we carry around or whatever we do now with our phones. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But what got me thinking was um, so this transition of uh, cassette and then I I believe CDs were commercially available in 1981 Um, but not every piece of music was available on CD when it came out just like not everything comes to streaming now for a variety of reasons yeah also CD wasn't wasn't really um, um, affordable until around 1985 or so right I didn't get my they started mass producing them in 1985 being a poor boy I didn't yeah. get my first CD player till I was 19, uh, and that yeah. would be 1989. Wow, you're later old than me. I, am. I was around 85. I was in college at the time. Right. So I was I still remember, into vinyl at that time, and I did have a cassette player. Uh, I remember the first CD I ever bought was R.E.M.'s third album, Fables of the Reconstruction. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And so, I loved it. What I've noticed... As we are going through this sort of uh, transition to all digital and streaming, and although b- both Mike and I are, are still collectors of physical medium, the and and will be for life, and will be <laughs> at least I will. <laughs> most of your buying has to be online now because the stores that sell new CDs uh, have almost nothing in stock. I was at uh, Tower Records and. Uh, the other place in town that sells new CDs. And I was, yeah, after Tower that, I Records, went... by the way, which is still in business in Japan. Yes, it's a different Japan. thing, because I know they're, they're uh, they folded in the U.S., but you can still go to Tower Records if you come out to Japan. And then I hit my two favorite used shops, and what struck me right away was that the used shops have twice as much selection as the new stores do now. And mm. <clears throat> when I go to the used stores i'm always looking for little gems that are out of print and not available and i find lots of especially jazz which is what i mainly collect that is on uh, cd that is not available even if you wanted to buy it new and you won't find it on streaming so i have hundreds of cds like that but 
this week I found something that I never knew about and that I would like to introduce, which is an album from 1982, which should have made it onto the CD medium, but never did because it was only released on vinyl and then it went out of print and was forgotten about. And I think there's a lot of works out there that are sort of like that, that were on a medium that the, the record company is defunct or was never reissued. Uh, and then is sort of lost to time. But uh, one of my favorite trumpet players, the great Bobby Shue, made a recording back in 1982 called Play Song. This is the Bobby Shue Sextet. And now it's available for the first time on CD and on streaming on Fresh Sound Records. And on this recording, you have the great Bobby Shue. And if you're not familiar with Bobby Shue, he's a trumpeter's trumpeter, trumpet player. He was one of the few trumpet players who would also uh, be known for playing lead trumpet, the loud, high sounds in a big band, who could also play uh, amazing solos. And his resume is impressive. Woody Herman, Buddy Rich, big band. He was a veteran of the Las Vegas show scene, L.A. studios, uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi, Lou Tabakin, big band, Louis Belson, and is a, a trumpet player who can just play anything. And uh, this album I didn't even know about because I had no way to ever listen to it. Uh, as an interesting fact, the adult music theme that you hear at the beginning and end of this podcast is played in part, while well, the trumpet part is played on my Bobby Shue Yamaha trumpet model, which I bought for uh, jazz playing as a unique lead pipe that he designed with his uh, collaboration with Yamaha. Uh, this particular recording is uh, uh, very nice. It's got uh, a variety of songs on it, uh, with some, played with some other L uh, Los Angeles-based players f from the early 1980s. There's uh, Gordon Brisker on tenor sax, uh, keyboardist Bill Mays, uh, drummer uh, Dick Burke, percussionist David Levine, and uh, there's five originals, and also uh, Clifford Brown's La Rue, which is played beautifully, and also the bassist Bob, Bob Magnuson. Bob Magnuson is a wonderful bass player. When, there's so many recordings I have with him on that I don't know when I listen, and I say, what is that deep, woody tone? And when I look who is the bass player, it's Bob Magnuson. Impressive resume, all sorts of jazz recordings, even pop recordings. Even he's recorded on a Madonna album. He was just a real monster of the bass. So this has some really tight arrangements and beautiful solos from Bobby Shue. Did you check this one out, Mike? Did you like this I one? I did. Um, the, the thing that jumped out about me, I'm going to talk about Bobby Shue's sound in just a moment because that really struck me. But the first thing that struck me about this recording was uh, the Fender Rhodes piano. It's a sound you just don't hear anymore. You don't hear it all. And it really yeah. dates. The, well, I don't want to say it, date, it doesn't date the recording, but it, may, it makes you aware of when the recording was made, let's say. I would right. have said late 70s. I was thinking, I know you're telling me it's 1982. I actually didn't do the research. But I was kind of enjoying hearing that sound again. Um, I remember that from a lot of pop songs in the era. Um, but you can tell it, was, it wasn't from our times. You just don't hear that sound anymore. If they were going to use a, like a doctored keyboard sound, it'd probably be a synthesizer of some Although, sort. I should say know? that some people have been bringing it back on purpose to sort of evoke the, uh, Miles Davis recordings of that era. 
Right. Uh, but I think it's to create that atmosphere when the Rhodes was dominant uh, right. in there. I think Whitney Houston had it on a lot of her mm. songs, I seem to recall, you know, back in the day. All right. And then there was um, Bobby Shue's sound. I was really paying special attention to this. He plays with a mute a lot, I noticed. Mm-hmm. But when he plays out, he gets that sort of like golden brassy sound that I was yes. thinking of. That is that last week, two weeks ago when we were talking about um, Ambr- Ambrosak and Musire, you know, he... Um, uh, he, you know, it's it's kind of like this dark kind of non sort of a sound that really doesn't ring. It's kind of right. it's a sort of black hole of a sound or something like that. And Bobby Shue is the opposite of that. He's got that just sunny, brassy sound that you really think of when you hear the trumpet and just to hear it was it's always a real pleasure. It kind of right. reminds me of Christmas a lot. I, don't, I associate brass with Christmas for some reason. Yeah. So you know where my mm-hmm. my uh, models come from from great great chops yeah just fantastic and so um since i'm breaking the rule with uh, new recordings a bit uh, the new old recording if you're not familiar with bobby shaw i'd just like to point out and i'll put these in the notes of two other awesome recordings uh, one of which the first i'll mention had disappeared with lack of availability but became available again and that's a recording called um playing with fire uh, it's on Mama Records. It comes from 1986. And this is uh, the Bobby Shue recording with the great trumpeter Tom Harrell. And uh, it also has, uh, I don't have the notes, but the pianist is uh, Kei Akagi, uh, Japanese pianist. This is one of the best trumpet albums I've ever heard. Uh, two trumpet two trumpet players. There's the uh, Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw recordings in the 80s. I think this one is just, the interplay between the two. Uh, I, re- I remember reading in the notes that when they were in the studio after the recording, listening to the playback, they couldn't remember who had played which lines because they were so in tune with each other that they're like, did you play that? Uh, I don't know. Was that you? Uh, the melding of minds is uh, great on this one. Uh, this was on uh, Mama Records, but you can find it on streaming. Spotify doesn't have it, but it's on Apple. So I'll put the link for that. Uh, it's a great Go album figure. that sort of slipped through the cracks. And the is other it on one, Deezer? Is it on uh, Deezer? It is on Deezer. You will find okay. it on Deezer. If any yeah. other people are using Deezer, I like Deezer. Do you like yeah, we, Deezer we so far, like Mike? Yeah, we both like Deezer. Yeah. I what? Yeah, I do you use like Deezer, Deezer so far? I do. Yeah, yes. good classical and jazz uh, selection on there. And the other one, disappointed. since mm. I'm on uh, the Bobby Shue uh, theme here, one that everyone should hear if you like Latin jazz is uh, Salsa Caliente. This ah, is, I like this one a lot. This is from 1998, also on Mama Records. You might sound like Bobby Shue. It doesn't sound like uh, someone who might play Latin jazz, but he's from Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico, and his first pro experiences were with Latin bands, so he's well-versed in the Latin idiom, and he can play anything, and he surrounds himself with some great uh, Latin players here. We've got uh, Trombone, Art uh, Velasco, uh, Justo Miero on tenor and flute, and uh, we've got some great percussion. This is a fabulous album. It just sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. It's fresh. Uh, if you've got a Pancho Sanchez high from the Grammy list, uh, Salsa Caliente by Bobby Shu. Yeah, this is, is great. Uh, a good one. It's a great album. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, also just hearing that um, that virtuosic trumpet playing too over those uh, Latin beats is, it was just fantastic too. So yeah. it really felt like something new to me. 
Yeah, yeah it's very fresh. Yeah, Bobby Shue. Check Great that out. Player. Before before we move on, I want to kind of this is memory popped up for me. You were, you were talking about um, how this album somehow didn't make it to a CD back in the day. I seem to recall that when CDs were first being released, they weren't really they they were kind of considered to be a uh, an audiophile um, form when they first came out because mm. there was there was no surface noise on them, so it was all classical music. And they just kind of, in the in the 80s, they were just considered to be sort of unworthy to have like popular music put on them. But you know, the market eventually kind of you know took over. And then by the, I'd say, I'd say 84, 85, um, popular albums like rock albums started to be like mass produced. I remember there's this big thing about how they couldn't get the rights to the Beatles. The, you know, they, they, those those records didn't come out until on CD until like much much later than everything else yeah but but i remember they started putting all the led zeppelin and rolling stones albums on cd that was like a big deal and that that happened in the 80s so there was this three-year gap where they weren't putting any anything but classical music on uh on cd and then you had the unfortunate when they realized that they they were going to be able to sell things on this new medium they just transferred these yeah this is another recordings with no with no considering of the mastering and the new medium. So you had these horribly, you know, treble heavy transfers that sounded terrible. And that turned off a lot of the serious audiophiles to the medium, you know, because it was supposed to be perfect sound forever. Um, But some of the the transfers were so brittle and treble heavy that, you know, they were unlistenable almost. Yeah, exactly. See, these days, when you get remastered CDs of, like, say, rock classics, they they generally sound really great now because they've, over the years, they've figured out how to kind of master records to the medium. It's got to be different than on an LP, on a vinyl record, to make it sound good. You can't that's just right. have the You same, don't have that natural you know, roll-off of the high end there. Right. So. Mm. That's right. Okay. More on that some other day. Some other day. Not too much. Yeah. audiophile geekery here although we enjoy yeah, well, it it's we, not our focus although we've got enough music geekery to- yes <laughs> all right and my final s- selection and the one i'm really happy to introduce to you could because it's just a joyful listen is yeah. this oh yes it is this recording by uh two great baritone sax players and there's never enough berry sax right i feel the same way so it's just an his- instrument you just don't hear enough. No, you of. don't. In the history of uh, jazz, it's sort of the sort of in the appendix, right? Of course, you have Jerry Mulligan as yeah. the uh, very smooth melodic player, and you have the Pepper Adams, who uh, on a lot of great recordings, and with Thad Jones giving the more edgy version, and other great players also from upstate New York, the great Nick Brignola, uh, who's no longer with us, but. And there are other great players too, but you know we never really think of uh, the baritone as the front and center. Uh, but here on this album uh, called Tough Baritones, which is sort of a play on the album uh, way back uh, around 1960, Tough Tenors, we've got the fabulous Ronnie Cuber along with uh, Gary Smullyan, uh, two of the leading baritone sax players, and we've got them both on this album together. And uh, Smullyan 
is about 65 years old, and Ronnie Cuber will be 80 years old on Christmas this year. But he well, he doesn't sound it. He, he like certainly he's got doesn't sound breath. it. Yeah. Um, these guys are both awesome. Uh, Cuber has a little bit of the edgy tone a la Pepper Adams. He's a very creative soloist, uh, adventurous, lots of energy with impeccable rhythm. Uh, over the years, he's recorded with tons of players and also made uh, a number of uh, Latin jazz recordings. And this album is just a lot of fun. The interplay these guys have is just full on with lots of energy. We've got 10 uh, cuts on this album and uh, three three of the cuts here are uh, Horace Silver tunes. We've got Nika's Dream, Split Kick, and The Preacher. So they've got that really funky post-bop uh, thing going on and the energy is great. Uh, in the standard sort of jazz song book, we've got uh, Richard Rogers' Lover. Uh, we've got a really nice version of Freddie Hubbard's uh, Little Sunflower. And we've also got a cover of uh, Thelonious Monk's Well, You Needn't. And so we've got a mix of real swinging jazz. There's a couple of blues numbers in here too. And it's just a raucous uh, baritone <laughs> party. And it sounds and boys, great. it's swing. Yeah, yeah if you're really looking for swings. swing and jazz, it's, it's, it's here. Yeah, and uh, these guys yeah. push it. It's post-bop pushing into more modern sort of outside playing, uh, always swinging with lots of energy. And it's really, really fun album. It's on, let's see, Steeplechase Records, but it's available on all the streaming platforms. And uh, I, when I, I had known Ronnie Cuber's name as appearing on various albums, but I hadn't really listened to any of his solo releases. When I heard this, I was really hooked. So I started looking in his, at, you know, his uh, collections over the years. And I went back to his debut. It's 1976, uh, Cuber Libre. And he was already a, a, a massive player in the mid seventies. And that's an awesome album too. That's uh, reissued as a digital remaster, uh, covering lots of, uh, standard star eyes and other other things so he's a guy who's always been sort of uh out there playing uh great stuff and also in ensembles because barry usually gets buried in the ensemble as the you know the low sound of yeah. the saxophone and he's he's played with uh his resume is huge over the years but uh he hasn't lost any of his touch at 80 years old so yeah everyone should check out this album and you can never have too much barry sax uh, in the repertoire there so yeah, and you can never be too happy either. And this no. uh, album is guaranteed no, 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 to uh, lift your spirits right away. It certainly did it to me. It was like, you know, I'm not that you I was down when yeah. I started it. Yeah. Yeah. So those are our selections for this week. And I loved every one of them. Yeah. Some good classical, some good jazz. You uh, know, this is the only the second episode we've done like this, really, because we got sidetracked by the Grammys. Yeah, we jumped on the Grammy train. Which, yeah, I don't know. I think that's got to figure be out like, how to do that next year. I think we should still do it, but maybe in a different way. A different know. way, yeah. Unless yeah. they wake up and find some <laughs> more interesting stuff to look at. Yeah, yeah. They're they're the least interesting of the awards, I think. I, I don't know. Um, or, or I like the year, I like year end lists. They're usually pretty good. They usually dig up something interesting that I missed during the year on those. So. Yeah, I've got lots of... I'm not going to say any names or records, but there's some things that are coming out this spring that I'm really looking forward to uh, talking about. And oh, me sharing. too. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've already got a backlog of classical things to listen to, but then I was looking at the jazz list and there were a few things I wanted to hear there too. Yeah. Should we let one slip that is really good? The Charles which, Lloyd. Which, oh, Charles Lloyd. Yeah. Yeah. That new one I've is heard really it yet. good. Oh, it just came like out. That one. Yeah. You heard and, it already, huh? Yeah. I'm not going to talk about it. And there's oh, one don't more tell me. that don't I'm really not even going to say the name, but uh, that's going to be coming up because <laughs> it's coming out in April. I've heard one track from it and it's going to be awesome. By yeah, a great yeah. player. We're going to turn the mics off and you got to tell me what it is because I got to get, yeah, yeah. get going on it. We'll talk about it on the show soon, as soon as we That's hear right. it. Okay. I'm well, a big Charles Lloyd fan, by the way, so I'm already liking it, you know. Yeah, you're going to like that one. And uh, we'll review it. Yeah, maybe we'll do that one in the next episode. Yeah, thanks for joining us again, everybody. It really, yes, uh, thanks for joining really us. Fun. For episode five, again, if you are listening and you've made it to the end of our broadcast of this podcast, please do leave us a comment and let us know where you are and what you enjoyed, what kind of music you're into, so we can get to know our audience a little bit better. And next time, we'll avoid the awards and the opinions of others and the critical and commercial influences on the music. And we'll just choose to talk about what we think is really happening out yeah. there in the classical jazz and maybe some other genre. In fact, we're in the clear until around September when the classical gramophone awards come out in Britain. So we're just going to months and months of, of just ground our to stuff. cover with yeah. whatever grabs our ear. So mm. until then, this has been the podcast for music for the mature mind. So keep listening and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.